0: You're listening to a message from South Hills Church in Burbank, California. For more information about South Hills, check out SouthHillsBurbank.com. feels like we've been in this series forever. It's only been five weeks, but uh, it just feels like it's been longer than that for some reason. But uh, we're going to wrap it up today. So if you're a note taker, uh, there's extra note sheets in the back of the room on the baskets on the wall. Uh, If you need a Bible, please grab one off the shelf and keep it for yourself if you don't own one. And uh, feel free to take pictures of the screen of anything that you would want to uh, just try to remember because if you can't write fast enough, uh, pictures are always good. So we've been in this series talking about overcoming and, and because of Jesus and because of the way Jesus overcame the cross at Easter, we have been given this ability, we've been given this power to overcome the obstacles in life, the challenges that life throws at us. And so this morning, um, I want to look into something that I believe is, a, is a, an area that many of us in this room uh, struggle with, is that, and that's when, when life throws something at you that you never anticipated, you didn't expect life to not go a certain way, and your plan A quickly became a plan B, and oftentimes your plan B becomes a plan C or D. And so I don't know about you, maybe you've, you've not experienced something not working out the way you wanted to, but um, I can look back at my life and I can see my entire life has been peppered with moments of failed plan A's where the thing I thought I was going to do, the hope that I had in a certain thing just didn't pan out the way I was wishing or hoping or dreaming that it would and quickly had to realize that I had to overcome the emotion and the feeling about moving on to something else. And along that process, wondering where was God in that, time period. The, the one that's just glaring for me, and, and maybe you've uh, heard me talk about this a little bit, but um, my, my first year of college was really my major plan A that failed. I would pilot a program where they were launching a biomedical engineering degree for the first time ever. It was going to be a brand new program in their engineering department, and that's what I wanted to do. That was my heartbeat, and I was coming out of high school Uh, As a good student with great grades and going to college, I was going to be a part of this thing because I wanted to do good for people. And I didn't want anything to do with church, to be honest. My grandfather was a pastor of a church up in uh, Northern California near Sacramento. Um, my, My family, we were in church all the time as kids. My parents were overly committed at times, it felt. I grew up sleeping under pews and on pews and stealing cookies from the church refrigerator. Like that was my life as a kid. I was raised in church. And I, honestly, I didn't want anything to do with ministry. I had people talk to me and say, man, you should, you should consider this. And I was like, no, 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 not my plan. And so my plan was to get a scholarship, which I got, so that I could go to college and go into a biomedical engineering program so that I could possibly become a doctor. And if that didn't work out completely the way I hoped, then I at least had an option of going into the, the medical engineering route. So I had it all figured out. I had it all put together until I completely failed my first year of college. And I was terrible. I was like the worst student imaginable in college. I couldn't pass a class. I couldn't study for anything. And it wasn't because I was in the wrong group of people. I found a great environment of friends. I I got plugged into this uh, great college organization called Campus Crusade for Christ. Developed incredible friendships and surrounded myself with the right people but it was just not working. And so for me to be a college freshman, having to admit that plan A was not going to work and to pack everything into my little two-door car and to drive back home and live with my parents again was my like low moment at the time. To have to admit after driving out of my parents' driveway, like when I first went to college and it was like peace out, I'm done, I'm never coming back home, I'll see you later, never. And then I I leave, and then literally within months, I'm driving back saying, I'm so sorry, can I please live in my old room again? That's a difficult moment. That's a moment where you have to settle into disappointment, and you have to start wrestling with questions. And I remember wrestling through a lot of anger and bitterness, because I felt like God gave me a plan A, and it all fell apart. And I was going to be stuck having to live out some plan B that was never my original intent. Now, I've learned several things since then that oftentimes my plan A is not God's plan A. And that my plan B was probably his original intent for me in the first place. And if I would have just not been an idiot and listened, I probably would have seen that. But I don't know if you've ever had these moments where things in life just don't work out. Maybe you've never experienced that. Maybe for you, everything has been perfect and life has just been a breeze. You've never had to really face disappointment or loss, but for the rest of us, we do. And so what do you do in life when you have to figure out how to live out a plan B and overcome the feeling of loss from plan A not working? Now, I do wanna just recognize that some of you are living your plan A. You had a dream as a kid and you pursued it And everything has aligned in your life and you have moved into it. You are now doing plan A and you are living it and you are thriving in it. And I want you to know that we are proud of you. Like I am honored that you are in that place in life and that life is good. And I don't want to convince you that you should be doing something else or make you feel guilty that you got your plan A and the rest of us didn't. Proud of you and we rejoice with you. But for the rest of the room... I want you to know that life happens sometimes and we couldn't plan it. We didn't see it coming, but things have happened in life and it has challenged our trust in God. It has challenged our faith. It has challenged our ability to see God working in moments where it feels like he is completely absent. We see life tending to fall apart at times and we wonder where is God in all of this? C.C.S. Lewis said this, that God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. That our pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And I would have to agree. I think the moments in my life where I have clearly been able to see God and hear God better have been at my worst moments. Because usually in the good moments, I don't really want to see God because I think I'm the one that's helping to make all this happen. And maybe you do that too. But in the moments where pain happens, where struggle happens, where difficulty settles in, those are the moments where we are able to really see God's hand working, if we choose to. But what do you do when plan A doesn't work and you're forced into plan B? How do you overcome the feeling? How do you overcome the emotion behind that? See, there's a question that I want to ask you this morning, and I want to ask you to ask yourself this question repeatedly i think every time you're faced with a decision i think you can ask yourself this question i personally believe that it will help you to grow in your relationship with god it'll help you grow in your understanding of god it'll help you begin to look for god in those difficult life situations and the question is a very simple question but the question is this what would you do if you were absolutely certain what would you do if you were absolutely certain that God was with you? That in every moment, in every difficulty, in every struggle, you really believed that God was with you? What if you knew for certain, you were completely sure, you were 100% confident that no matter what, God was always with you? how would that change you? How would that change your response to situations? How would that challenge the way you see life, the way you push through things, or the way you give up? How would it change you if you were confident that God was always right there? At the time when it feels like your marriage is unraveling and you want to hit the panic button, what if you were absolutely certain that God was still with you? Or what if when your kids are challenging everything and they're turning their backs on God and faith and they are just, they are completely messed up? What if you were absolutely certain that God was still with you? What if there's that moment where you get the diagnosis from the doctor that you never thought you would ever hear those words for you? And it's debilitating And it's crippling. But what if you knew and you were absolutely certain that God was still with you? See, I think it changes the way we respond. It changes the way we begin to perceive an outcome. It changes the way we observe our circumstances. When we begin to believe that God is really with us. And even if we don't understand what he's doing, Even if we can't see his hand at work, you can still trust that he is. You can have confidence that he has never walked away from you, that he has never turned his back on you. And I want to give you a story this morning. I want to share with you a narrative through the book of Genesis. It's the first book in the Bible. And I want you to look at this particular narrative and see what happens in someone's life when life doesn't work out the way that they thought it would. When the dream happens at a young age and life just doesn't seem like that dream is ever really going to take place. What happens when you begin to see life through the lens that God is really with you? So in Genesis chapter 37, we're introduced or we get to meet this young man named Joseph. This is uh, Joseph of the Old Testament, not Jesus' father, Joseph, not the Mary and Joseph, Joseph. This is way before that in the book of Genesis chapter 37. What you find out is that Joseph is the youngest son in this family, a pretty important family, a patriarchal family of the Jewish faith. That his father's name has literally been changed by God to Israel. That's how important this family is. And it says this in Genesis 37, 3, that now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. So he made him this richly ornamented robe. Now, we have a hard time understanding richly ornamented robes because we don't have a lot of that these days. So it would be like a really awesome like bedazzled jean jacket for you. So it would be a lot of rhinestone, a lot of really great colors, just beautiful. Like you would walk into a room and you would sparkle. That's, the, that's kind of the moment that this is for Joseph. So when his brothers saw that the father loved him more than any of them, they hated him. And they could not speak a kind word to him, I love that the Bible does not gloss over this dysfunctional family. That it's like, it's right there. As plain as day, this is a normal, perfect biblical family, right? Like they are messed up. Their brothers hate the younger brother. They can't speak kind words to him. And what we're going to find out really soon is that they really don't like the youngest brother. And so the father loves Joseph more than the others. He showers him with gifts He gets him his bedazzled jean jacket with his name on it and all these kind things about him. And he can't do anything but speak kindly about his youngest son. Now, that was usually reserved for the oldest son. The oldest son was usually the favorite because he was the one that was going to inherit everything. But this father loved the youngest more than the rest. And Joseph was special. Joseph had dreams, these God-given dreams that somehow he was going to be used by God to save his family, that he was going to be used to save countless people, that there was this this thing that was going to happen he didn't understand it completely but he saw god wanting to use him to do something great and he started to share that with his brothers and they hated him even more when he started to share his dreams and he shared it with his father and his father was kind of kind of laughed it off a little bit but joseph believed that god wanted to use him for something incredible but he was hated despised by his brothers so his brothers are going to conspire together to do something to get rid of Joseph. So they get together. They're going to they're they're going to uh, get together and say, uh, come up with this idea of what if we what if we killed our brother? So one of them actually recommends that idea. What if we what if we just killed him? Like what if we just got rid of him? We faked a death and like we tore his jacket, put some animal blood on there, told dad that he got shredded by some animal in the wild. Like what if we did that? And then they were all kind of on board with it. And then. One of the brothers has a little bit of compassion. And he's like, well, maybe we shouldn't kill him. What if we throw him into a well? Like an empty well. Like, I don't know if that's really compassion. I don't think by definition that would be compassionate. <laughs> but then they, they come back with this idea, well, what if we profit off of this at least? And we sell him into slavery. So there's a, maybe an ounce of compassion in there. I'm not really 100% sure. But in Genesis 37, the story continues in verse 23 and 24. And it says, so when Joseph arrived... His father had sent him to bring the brother's lunch. So he's, you know, just skipping down the road with his picnic baskets. And he just thinks he's bringing his brother's lunch with his bedazzled jean jacket. And his brothers rip off his beautiful robe that he was wearing. Then they grab him and throw him into a cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So the brothers see him coming and they're like, man, let's just kill him. I hate this kid. He's the youngest. He's the favorite. We need to get rid of him. He's in the way. Can't stand all the dreams that this kid has. Let's just kill him. No, let's not kill him. Let's throw him into this well. Well, what if we sell him? So here's Joseph sitting at the bottom of an empty well, staring up into the light coming through the hole at the top, wondering how in the world is that dream that you had as a child ever going to come true now? I mean, just just imagine for a moment, like where, where are you mentally and emotionally when you're sitting at the bottom of a well? The pain is overwhelming. The feeling of rejection, the feeling of abandonment, the emotion that's coming together, realizing that you, all of your brothers hate you and despise you. That no one is really for you and that you now realize that you're probably never going to see your father again. You're never going to get to go back home again. That once you're sold into slavery, who knows what's going to happen to you now. And this is usually what happens to you and I when life doesn't work the way we hoped. is we ask these amazing two questions or two words. Why me? Why me? God, why me? Why do I have to be the one to do this? Why me? Why do I have to go through with this? And you've wondered that at some point in your life. You've, you've laid in bed at night, you've, you've had a hard time falling asleep, and you stare at the ceiling, and you just keep asking God over and over, God, why me? Why am I having to go through this? Why am I having to face this? God, where are you in all of this? And it's kind of a, a half prayer and a half angry statement to God. When we go down the track of asking, feeling alone and abandoned, And when we go down the track of asking why me and why God and why aren't you here, we then start to wonder, well, God, where are you in the first place? And there's no way that you could be with me, God. Because we have this default in our minds where we believe that if God is really with us, then life is going to always be good. And there's no promise in the Bible that says that. God has never promised you and he's never promised me that life was going to be easy. He never said, if you believe in me, then life will be a piece of cake. But what I've learned to understand over time and through experiences and failed plan A's is that God is, God is most powerfully present when he seems to be completely absent. That God is more powerful in those moments. He is more present in those moments. When you and I think that he is completely absent. Because when we think he's completely absent and we kind of come to the end of ourselves and we get to that place where we start asking those questions. I believe that that's the place where we get to start seeing God actually at work if we look for it. You see, God has never stopped working on your behalf. He's never stopped caring for you. He's never stopped wanting you to win or wanting you to succeed. God has always been right there. At times, you simply don't see it and you don't feel it. But that doesn't change the fact that he's still working for you. So Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. And if you fast forward in Genesis, at Genesis 39, we find that Joseph is now in Egypt. So Joseph was taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, a very prominent person in Pharaoh's uh, in Pharaoh's um, council. Bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there and the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. I want to make sure that you caught something stated in that passage that the Lord was with Joseph, even when it doesn't feel like the Lord is with Joseph, the Lord was with Joseph. It's a phrase that gets repeated throughout Joseph's story. And as you continue to read Joseph's story, you start to wonder where in the world is God in all of this? Like this is crazy stuff that keeps happening to this guy. But the Lord was with Joseph. Well, didn't Joseph get beat up? Yeah. Wasn't he taken into a foreign land? Yep. Isn't he a slave now? Yeah. And we don't oftentimes say it aloud, but we assume that because the Lord was with him, then everything should be good. We know better, but our brains want us to believe that. We know that life doesn't work that way, but we start to think that there's this unspoken deal with god that if somehow i can just be a good person if i can live a pretty moral life if i can be generous from time to time then god has to keep up his end of the bargain in which he's never made with us but we have arranged some silent agreement with god that he has to bless us and keep bad things from happening to us but god just has never made that deal with you he's never made that deal with me And so the struggle then is what do we do in these moments when life hasn't worked the way that we thought it was going to work? What do we do when it feels like plan A is crumbling and we have to move on to the next? Because what we would think is that if I choose to follow God, if I choose to give my life to Jesus and I commit to this thing, then life for me should be success, 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 success. And really what life tends to be is success, failure, success, heartbreak, success, pain, success, letdown. Or from you, probably just remove all the success and it's just failure, heartbreak, pain, letdown. And you wonder where in the world is God in all of that? And so what we do is we start to lose trust. We start to lose trust in who God is. We start to lose faith that God is who he said he was going to be. We start to not believe all the promises that God has made to us. But I just want to encourage you that you can trust in God's identity. You can trust in God's identity even when his activity doesn't make sense for you. You can trust that he is who he said he was going to be. That he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always be there for you, even when it doesn't look like he is. So what would you do if you were absolutely certain that God was with you no matter what? Well, that's what Joseph believed. Joseph continued to operate with the idea that God was with him, even when life didn't feel like it, even when circumstance told him something different. As you continue in Genesis 39, we find out that uh, in verse 3 and 4, that when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. just, Just pause, just for a moment. Potiphar, who is an Egyptian, who does not believe in Yahweh, does not believe in the Jewish God, does not believe in the one true God, he begins to see something different in Joseph. He notices that there's something unique about this guy, that he is, he is different. He responds differently than everyone else. And Potiphar begins to see that something is different in this guy and he wants to do something different for him and with him. He begins to see that even though life has not always been good to Joseph, that Joseph is going to continue to be faithful to him and to God. And So verse 4 tells us that Joseph finds favor in his eyes and becomes his attendant. Basically, he becomes the master of the house of Potiphar. And Potiphar puts him in charge of his entire household, and he entrusts to his care everything that he owned. So suddenly, this is where you think the story's going. Like, this, this kid who had a dream to be great, and God was going to do amazing things, gets sold into slavery, and, and suddenly life turns around, and he's now at the top of the game, and, and God's going to use him to bless people. But this is not really where the story ends. The hits just kind of keep on coming. Things keep happening to Joseph time and time again. And what we realize is that what's happening to him is is this challenge to his attitude. It's a challenge to his heart. That even though Joseph may feel rejected and abandoned by his family, he never stops depending on God. He never stops believing that God really is with him. So Joseph is in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. The only thing that he can't touch is Potiphar's wife, in which Joseph is like, I don't really want to touch your wife, so we'll leave that alone. And so Joseph is fine with that, but Potiphar's wife is not. Potiphar's wife begins to give him the eyes from the other side of the room. Every day when he walks into the room, she's giving him the look, and he's like, no thanks, I'm out. And so he doesn't want anything to do with it, but she keeps giving him the look, and it kind of goes PG-13 from that point and she tries to really like subtly seduce joseph and so one day she walks up to him just in her subtle way and she comes to him and she whispers to him come to bed with me super subtle like really under like you had to read through it and really see what she's trying to say but joseph chooses to respond as if god was with him and he refuses as a matter of fact, she grabs onto his coat and she's being more and more forceful with him and Joseph slips out of his, his bedazzled jean jacket and he runs for his life. And so she falsely accuses Joseph of the very thing that he ran from in which he really, as a slave, has no response. There's no trial. He's just thrown into prison. And so he is arrested. He's falsely accused. He's falsely imprisoned. imprisoned. For the very thing that he actually had the self-control not to do. But he's going to go to prison anyway. Now, I don't know about you. Maybe you're, you're different than I am. But this is the moment for me where I sit back and I throw my hands up in the air and I say, why bother? If I'm Joseph, it's like, why, why do I keep doing this? Why am I trying to do what's right all the time? I'm tired of following God and getting this as a result. Why do I even pray why do I even have these amazing dreams why do I even want to follow God in the first place if this is what life is going to continue to throw at me but that's not what Joseph does that's my heart that's my response and I think that's our human nature and so I think we just can be really honest with each other for just a few moments here If you and I were just really honest, bare bones honest, it's hard to remain faithful to God when it feels like God is not faithful to you. And when it feels like God has abandoned you, you feel like it's okay for you to abandon God. You keep trying to trust him, but it feels like you can't. That you were the one that was faithful in marriage. You didn't ask for this. You are the one that keeps being generous, but you still lost your house. You were the one that prayed for your kids, but they still keep pulling away. You were the one that that was loyal to your company for years, yet you were the one that was chopped. You tried to do everything the way God wanted, but it still feels like things are falling apart. And I get that. I understand that feeling. I have that feeling at times, and I have wrestled through that emotion. I've wrestled through these questions of God, where are you in all of this? And here's what I've learned and what I want you to remember this morning is this, that every single day you have a choice. Every single day you have a choice that you can live based on your interpretation of your circumstance or you can live based on God's promise that he's always with you. See, you and I can look at life and we can think That life is all about the circumstances. So we, we interpret the way circumstances are working out. And when you and I try to interpret circumstance, we just see God not being involved. Because what we don't have is perspective. We don't have the ability to zoom out and see life from a distance. But for me, I can look back on life every step of the way. At every question, at every challenge, at every disappointment, at every uh, failed plan A and failed plan B, I can always look back and see where God's promise was always that he was with me. And that God really was with me in those moments where I questioned his very existence. God was constantly with me. He was constantly guiding me. He was constantly moving me in the direction that he wanted me to go. I just couldn't see it because I was wrapped up in my circumstance. See, this wasn't the last plan B for Joseph. Not only is he sitting in prison, but he then gets betrayed while he's in prison. He gets forgotten by the very people who promised that they would remember him and help him get out. So what did Joseph do? Joseph did what he'd always done. He continued to believe that God was with him continued to have confidence that God was still with him, even when it didn't make sense, even when life looked like he wasn't. And strangely enough, it's only when we trust and look for God in our circumstances that we find him. It's only when you and I begin to really believe that he's there. We really believe that he is in this somehow, some way. We just can't see it yet. I think sometimes it's only after we choose to respond like he's actually there with us that we actually begin to see him working for us. So you remember that phrase that the Lord was with Joseph? It keeps showing up throughout the rest of Joseph's story. The Lord really was with him. It continues. The story just keeps unfolding. And finally, the Pharaoh has this dream that he's just plagued by and this vision that keeps coming to him. And no one can tell him what it means. He's gone to all of his people and all of his sorcerers and all of his mystics and all of the other people that were in uh, the palace. And, and none of them could tell him what his dream meant. And finally, one of the guys that was in prison with Joseph actually remembers Joseph and says, hey, there's this guy that I met in prison. He interpreted my dream and my dream came true. And so the Pharaoh says, get him. And they bring him out and they clean him up because he's been in prison for a long time and they needed to clean the guy up before he comes in to the palace. And and he comes and he stands before the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh tells him his dream and says, now tell me what my dream means. And he says, well, I can't tell you what your dream means, but God can tell you what it means. And so he tells him what his dream means. And his dream was basically this idea that that there were going to be years of plenty and then there were going to be years of famine and that if you would take care and save during the years of plenty, then you'll have enough left over during the years of famine and that all the surrounding nations will come to you and they'll want to buy what you have because their countries are going to be going through a famine as well and you're going to become rich and you're going to become the most powerful nation that you could possibly be. Which is on the side, it's also a lesson about... Money. So if you really want to go there, we could go there another time. But there's a lesson there about how we should take care of ourselves and save during years of plenty because years of plenty don't always last. So there's this idea, the Pharaoh throws out this dream and and Joseph interprets the dream for him. And Joseph is then put in charge of everything. And finally, after all of these years, after 20 plus years of enslavement, and imprisonment, and with distance from family, he finally sees his family again because they have to buy grain during the years of famine. And Joseph, his dream actually plays out. The dream that he had once as a child is the dream that God gave him, is the dream that God has been working this whole time. And suddenly it all comes together the way God wanted it to come together, but Joseph couldn't have seen that from the bottom of a pit. And he couldn't have seen it from his enslavement. And he couldn't have seen it from his time in prison. But Joseph always believed that God was with him. And that's what pushed him through. That's what enabled him to trust that God was really always there. And truthfully, I believe that that's your story too. Because I know that it's my story. I couldn't have seen God's hand at work at the time. When my plan A fell apart and I had to move on to plan B. But looking back, having perspective and having distance, I can see God's hand at work the whole time. And I believe it's true for you. The difference is really in the choices that Joseph made. Joseph chose to believe and respond as if God was with him all the time. And I believe that's what you and I need to learn how to do. Respond as if God really was with us all the time, even when you feel alone, even when you feel abandoned, even when you feel hurt, even when you feel like you can't trust. You can still believe that God is with you. And it's the same thing with Jesus. See, we actually hear this in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is, is going to tell you and I something about Jesus. Jesus is oftentimes referred to as our high priest because this was predominantly written to a Jewish audience. But in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, it says this For we do not have a high priest who is unable a Messiah is with our weaknesses. You and I do not have a high priest a Messiah, a Savior, a Jesus Christ. We do not have a Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, our failures, our disappointments, our doubts, our questions. But we have one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Well, David, I don't know if Jesus can really understand my sense of loneliness. You don't think Jesus felt alone hanging on a cross when Scripture says that His Father had to turn His back away from Him because God the Father could not look upon His Son carrying the burden of sin of the entire world. Even though He Himself had never sinned, He took upon Himself all of the sin of the world. And God the Father had to turn away from His Son. I think Jesus knows what it feels like to feel alone. I think he knows what it feels like to feel abandoned when all of his disciples scattered and ran their own way. He knows what it feels like to experience loss and hurt and pain. But Jesus, just like Joseph, had a decision to make. He had to choose to know that in this moment, that God would always be with him. So Jesus understands you. He understands your pain. He understands your distrust. He understands your moments of question and your moments of doubt. And what he calls you and I into is a daily decision. A daily decision that we would make to trust that God is always with us. And that he is always working on our behalf, even in the moments that we can't see him. So, what would you do? What would you do if you were absolutely certain that God was with you, no matter what? Thanks for taking some time to listen to this message. We hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it. Be sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram to stay updated on all that's happening at South Hills Burbank.